I hope you brought a Bible. <clears throat> we might be studying it a little bit in a minute. Uh, you might want to try to find Acts chapter 2, and we'll finish up our uh, look at that chapter that we began really on December the 27th, and we've just gotten back to it. But now, guys, um, follow, if you will, as I read from Acts chapter 2. It's, it's um, six verses. It's the close of a very long day in the city of Jerusalem. And these verses read like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this, this endures forever. Guys, did you happen to notice my title in the bulletin for my sermon this morning? Koinonia. <laughs> is that a familiar term to you? What that is, is an English rendering of a Greek word, koinonia, which is translated with the English word fellowship. Guys, back in the 70s and the 80s, that term fellowship, oh my. It was quite the rage, and, and I think, I'm not sure of this, but I think it was made into the rage by this little book, uh, a book written in 1972 by Ray Steadman called Body Life. In fact, this book was quite the rage as well, but I think that's where it came to life, this, this idea of fellowship, why we had fellowship churches, we had fellowship halls. Oh, I had one man come to my office and want to discuss fellowship with me, and he, he defined fellowship as a bunch of fellows in the same ship. Uh, that's, that's honest truth. Um, we, had, we had fellowship groups. We had fellowship time. Uh, we had people saying, why don't you come over to my house and we can have a little fellowship? I mean, I grew to hate the word. Um, but there it is, right there in the text, verse 43, uh, verse 42. And I... Um, I, I guess we have to deal with it, huh? It's there in the text. Let's, let's see what's in this last paragraph of chapter two. Guys, um, as the day of Pentecost came to a close, as, and you know, um, that's what's in verse one. That is, all of chapter two is describing one day um, in the life of the New Testament people of God. It was called Pentecost. And so as that day came to a close, um, there had been a monumental advance in the spread of the gospel, which had created quite a logistical problem for the leadership of this group of people. Um, we now have 3,000 new people on our hands. What are we gonna do with them? Um, what's our next step? Does anybody have a plan? Well, God did. And the plan 
was the church. The church is born on Pentecost. And what did that church look like? Well, um, these six verses are at least going to get us started in our understanding of what anything that could legitimately be called a church looks like. Now, gang, let, let me start here. So this is just a little principle as we, as we get rolling. Um, here's the principle. New life expresses itself immediately. New life expresses itself immediately. <clears throat> so, I mean, they've got 3,000 new lives. You know, guys, uh, um, when they realized that this was available to them, this thing called the church, they came and they came eagerly and they came willingly. Folks, um, never, I've been here 30 years now, never have you ever heard me from this pulpit, ever, chastise anybody for not coming to church. Why? Because you don't have to. You don't have to go round people up and guilt them into coming to church. Why? Because new life expresses itself immediately. And so you see that new life being expressed in this new thing called the church. Let's take a look at her. First of all, let me begin with just a little bit of the tacky. Can't help myself. Um, I want you to notice what's not here. There's no priesthood. Uh, there's no uh, candles. There's no statues. And for our age, there's, um, there's no car washes. There's no uh, bingo. There's no uh, raffles. None of that's here. I don't know where that came from. But I want you to notice what is here. And what is here, we're told, is a devotion. The Holy Spirit produces that. He produces a devotion. Um, a devotion to what? Well, to at least four things that are mentioned right here. But that's not to say that's all of the things that, he, that we're devoted to. I mean, if you read the book of Psalms or even Ephesians 5, you will notice that uh, church music was certainly a part of the early worshiping people. But that's not mentioned here. But at least... These four are mentioned here. Now, gang, I think I need to say this, but just as kind of a, an aside, I am not highlighting these four things because they are 
traditional. I have no interest in maintaining the status quo. I am going to show you four things that are in the text. They're mentioned here. They're mentioned as the Holy Spirit saw fit to include them. So we're going to look at these things because they're in the text. Just keep that in mind. Okay. To what were these people devoted? Well, first, you will notice, it's not that they're devoted to the apostles. No, no. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to know more stuff (coughs) about God. You know what that's called, don't you? That's called theology. That's a terrible word. The study of God, ladies and gentlemen, is what theology is. They wanted to know more doctrine. When the Holy Spirit lit these people up, their souls longed to know more about the God who was now their father in heaven. Gang, uh, Jesus made a statement in John 17. Um, He said, um, and this is eternal life, that they might know you. Jesus is praying and he says to his father, this is the essence of eternal life, is that they might know you. Guys, if God exists, And for the life of me, I can't understand why you'd be here if you don't think he does. But if God exists, then he is the measure of all things. And thus, what he thinks about all things is the measure of what we should think about all things. Um... These people, they, they had lived most of their adult life displeasing this God. And so now they want to know, how might I please him? What is he like? What does he say? <clears throat> what does he love? What does he hate? How does he want me to live? How does he want me to worship? How does he want me to parent? How does he want me to give? I don't want to displease him anymore. I want to live to his pleasure. So let me know more about him. You know, ladies and gentlemen, for the life of me, it baffles me as to how the church in the 21st century, or maybe even in the 20th as well, how did she get to the place that they no longer are devoted to the apostles' teaching? Because as you know, doctrine always divides. 
doctrine is divisive. Since when? Somebody needs to tell these people that doctrine is divisive. Because the first thing they did when they got there is they clamored to know more of it. People in this era, oh yeah, well the Bible is, um, it's, uh, it's good, but what we need is an upgrade. Because, you know, it was written to, by primitive people to, to primitive people, and we're not primitive anymore, we're sophisticated. Hmm. You know, I remember R.C. Sproul saying to me one time, he said it, it was just me and him, I, I think there was three of us. He said that the greatest problem in the Christian world today was sensuality. And he wasn't using that term in its sexual sense. What he was saying is that the church today wanted above all else good feelings. I want to be happy. You know, there's a verse in John 8 that I quote a lot. Um, John 8, 32 says, you shall know the truth and you sh- it will set you free. Did you hear that? You shall know the truth and it will set you free. Did you see the order? Did you see the sequence? Once you know the truth, the truth gives you an experience of freedom and liberty. But never the other way around, ladies and gentlemen. You never arrive at truth through your experiences or your feelings. You discover the truth and it's the thing that gives you the feelings. But today, the Christian church wants to bypass all of that truth business and head straight to the feelings. All I can tell you is, from the moment the church was born, She was devoted, devoted to the apostles' teaching. I would go so far as to say, ladies and gentlemen, that sitting or listening to the word of God taught is an inevitable expression of new life. Folks, you have no interest in this. You have no interest in knowing God better. You just came because it's um, what you do, but you have really no interest in getting to know this God better. Let me say it again. The principle, remember the principle? New life always expresses itself immediately. And the first thing that we're told as an expression of their new life was they were devoted. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, I would also point out 
that that was the first thing mentioned. The second thing is koinonia. There's the word I used to hate or still do. Um, fellowship. But you, you will notice that the apostles' teaching comes before fellowship. The apostles' teachings were first. And then it bred a fellowship. Um, there was a, a desire to be together. Um, I want to be alongside others who believed in this same Jesus that I now believe in. You know, I go to work on Monday mornings and there I'm a minority. But in here, I'm a majority. Other people believe the same things that I do in here. And I, I like those people. I love those people. And I, I, I want to continue to get to know Jesus alongside them. You know, if you know anything about the book of First John, you know, he, he wrote the gospel and then he wrote these three little, First John, Second John, Third John. Well, if you know anything about First John 1, they talk about fellowship a great deal in there, but he makes very clear that any fellowship that's worth the Christian name has its centrality in Christ. There is a commonality. If you are a saved man or woman in this room, you and I belong to the same family. We, we rejoice in the same Savior. We have the same life in us. And thus, you're the people I want to hang out with. These people were devoted to it. Because now there were 3,000 of them that, that all believed in the same Jesus. Here's the third thing. <clears throat> um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now, gang, there's a, there's a couple of things that that could mean. Uh, it could mean just common everyday meals, and I, I'm sure it includes that. But I think the thing that is in view here, I, I'm, I'm, I suggest to you, is the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Um, they, they had their larger meals together or their other meals together, but they also were devoted to this sacrament, the sacrament that we observed last week called the Lord's Supper. And here's why I think it's so valued or should be so valued among us. It's valued because you can't miss the gospel at it. Jimmy Young might confuse you, and even the apostles might confuse them. But when I come to that table, there are things there that you simply cannot confuse. Broken body, shed blood. It's the gospel there. And so I'm, I'm kind of stumbling there, Peter or James. I'm kind of stumbling over that Trinity thing that you're teaching, but I've sure got that. I sure love this, uh, this, this communion thing because you can't miss the gospel there. How often did they do it? We're not told. We do it around here once a month. I don't know whether that's frequent or not, but, but they were devoted to it, and so are we, um, to have it at least once a month. Then the last thing that there is mentioned is prayers. Isn't it interesting how it says it? And the prayers. <laughs> they were devoted to the prayers. 
it's a reference to both public prayer and private prayer. You know, the prayer that took place in the temple and the prayer that took place in the homes. Um, And you know, I don't think we do very good at that, the Christian church worldwide. And I think one of the reasons that we don't do very well at the prayers is because we're so confused about it. And I'm sorry to tell you, I'm not gonna be able to eliminate much of your confusion. Um, We got a whole lot of questions that swirl around this topic of prayer. But I can tell you this much. The Holy Spirit creates within his people a longing to connect with this God who is their Father in heaven, doesn't he? He does that, I think, for much the same reasons that you've heard the adage, there's no atheist in foxholes. Did I just lose you? Have you ever heard that adage about there's no atheist in foxholes? Have you ever heard that? You know what that means? You know what a foxhole is? A foxhole is where a soldier would dig a hole in the, in the ground on the, on the battlefield to, as protection so that he could fight and have a little bit of protection from shooting from the, the foxhole. But there were no atheists in foxholes because you see, when you feel <clears throat> that you're overly threatened, that you're attacked, that you're opposed and that you're in danger, you really want to connect with God. You see, we Christians, we know that we're not in charge. We know that our needs are great and we know that we're completely dependent. And so, what do we do? We cry out like a bunch of people in foxholes. (laughs) Now, But if you lose sight of those things, that is, well, I'm not in danger, I am in charge, I'm not dependent, and I don't have very many needs, what happens? Mm. Prayer suffers, doesn't it? But boy, let us have a car accident, or have a sick child, and we're reminded, just like somebody in a foxhole, Guys, the best reason that I can find, that I can give you to pray is that Jesus did. And he told me to. Even though I've got questions about prayer and its efficacy, but I can tell you this much, the first church, this church, the purest church, they prayed much. In fact, they were were devoted to it. Now, gang, so here comes the hard part. Uh, let's pause for a moment and let's size up Grace Evan. How's she doing? What do you think? Now, b- before you decide, let me mention a couple of other things quickly from the text that are also characteristic of this people who was the, in the first church, this Acts 2 church. First of all, they're both in verse 46. Birth, first of all, they were generous. Did you notice that? They had all things in common and, and they were selling all their goods and distributing as people that need Some people have called this the first um, experiment of communism, and that's nonsense. Communism says all of yours is mine, and Christianity says all of mine is yours. But you can see here that this early church was no synagogue of misers, and neither are you here at Gracie Van. 
Do you realize, brother and sister, that your church, because of your giving, has given away in the last two years over $2 million to ministerial and missions causes around the world and locally? $2 million out the doors in the hopes that the kingdom of God could expand. You know, maybe we've learned that God don't bless no stingy church. Well, at least I hope we have. The other thing is, I'll point out, is that there was gladness. Um, uh, Breaking their bread, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Folks, in my mind, and I may be prejudiced, and you'll have to write it off, I guess, but in my mind, this is a happy place. Grace Amen is a happy place. People are glad. Um, I guess we've all learned from previous church experiences, perhaps, how division can drive the Holy Spirit away from us. And to date, God in his kindness has seen fit to give us a sweet peace. And we're glad. Okay, now, how do we stack up? I'm going to have to let you decide that. There's one other sentence that I want to draw your attention to before I quit. It's the last sentence of the chapter. Um, The last sentence of the chapter says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Um, Three quick observations about that sentence. Number one, do you notice on whom the emphasis is placed in this great work of conversion? Not man. The Lord added. Secondly, once he saved them, Where did he put those people? He put them in the church. Saved people join the church. And then the final detail is this. Who joins a church? Saved people. Guys, I I point that out because surely you know that church membership doesn't save you. Um, Men can fool men. You want to lie to somebody? Lie to me because I want to think the best about you. But men can fool men. But the only ones that God adds to the church are the saved people. You know, I said that word koinonia, um, which I hated, it's kind of disappeared. It's kind of dropped out of the Christian lexicon, at least as compared to the 70s or 80s. But let me tell you about a word that has not disappeared. It's the word saved. Now, church membership doesn't save me. I am saved by the sovereign grace of an almighty God. 
But when he saves me, one of the expressions of new life is that I begin to pursue a church membership so that I can be a part of this. And this, with all of her flaws, I want to be alongside those people who believe the same things that I believe about Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, I am saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and that alone. Don't add to that. Don't add your baptism or your church confirmation or your church membership to do so. To, to, to add to the finished work of Christ is to ruin it. God adds to his church people who have found Jesus Christ and are trusting him and trusting him alone to be saved. Is that you? Our Father, um, would, you, would you make Gracie Van more and more a place over which you can smile? We thank you that you for 30 years have prevented us from fighting. But Lord, we're as wicked as any other church. Would you, would you guard us? Would you protect us from that kind of party spirit that leads people to fight with each other? But also, Lord, would you use us? Would you use us to advance a simple message that Jesus saves? And apart from him, outside of him, there is no remedy for sin. Father, um, if you've brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you, um, would you stir them? Stir them like you did on this day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Bring people. Add, add to the real church numerous people who have just been saved. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.